Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Underbelly is looking for a product design director in Salt Lake City. Ithaca Harbors is looking for a user researcher for their search and discovery team in New York City or Ann Arbor, Michigan. If you're looking for remote work, 36 Creative out of the greater Boston area is looking for a senior designer. Brave Achievers is looking for design students for Go Create USA, a no-fee design training program for Black American youth. And Bandcamp is looking for a mobile applications developer. Companies, stop making excuses on your D&I efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And this week, I'm talking with Brandy Davis, a creative director in Chicago, Illinois. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Brandy Davis. I am a graphic and web designer by trade. I am recently entering into the apparel industry. Work on websites for my niche is small businesses. I love helping small businesses and entrepreneurs create their branding and get their sites up and running and able to be profitable for their businesses. Nice. Now, before we kind of get more into what you do and your background and everything, I've been doing this check-in with everyone this year because of the pandemic. So how are you kind of holding up during this time? I, I'm starting to balance out. Thanks for asking. I'm starting to balance out. When it first started, that first month was very tough. Literally, work came to a stop. And understandably so, everyone was scrambling trying to figure out how to shift their business models from events and different things. I think stuff started to sort of shift a little bit better for me, probably around May or June. Right now, we're starting to, we're like on an upswing. So we're starting to get more clients that are looking to now, they have a better grasp of what they're doing virtually. And so now they want to execute. So Mm -hmm. things are starting to pick up a little bit more. But that first month was like, whoa, like it was silent. I had to struggle myself to sort of figure out like, how do I shift to uh, to support people in an industry that that is ideal for us virtually for to be a graphic and web designer? This is ideal. But how do I shift my model and market to my existing clients and help them in a virtual world? So I had to shift a little bit as well. It was a little scary at first, but it's starting to balance out and feel a little bit more like normal. Nice. 
What are your work days kind of looking like right now, just in general? So I try to balance things out between the graphic and apparel side because I do in-house printing for that piece. So I have sort of like a split day where maybe like the first four to five hours I'm at the desk designing. Probably the last and then I do like some me time in between. And then late in the evenings, I'm printing for about another three to four hours. Wow. And you're doing the the printing in-house? Yes. I would say about 93, 93%. I know that's a weird number, but about 93% of the printing is done in-house. I used to use an online resource, but now just to kind of keep quality and basically to keep quality in check, I was like, you know what? It's an investment, but I need to bring this in-house to make sure that I'm giving the customer what they expect. Wow. So you must have a, I mean, well, I don't know. Tell me like, what does that space look like? It is. So I'm home based. I am fingers crossed looking to move into a studio space, a bigger workspace, but it's literally basement workshop set up. Um, I have a printer, the heat presses, everything, all the equipment that I need to treat the garments. I have any other like vinyl cutters and different things that I do depending on the designs. It has been self-taught to for a certain extent. I was not familiar with any of this at first. I had other people that I would work with. So it's, yeah, it's it's not a massive workspace, but it gets the job done. You know, it, it's enough to kind of get the, the job done. I, I utilize about a fourth of the basement. Okay. No, I'm, I'm curious about that because uh, you mentioned, you know, that you were doing it online. And I know that there's a lot of these sort of print to order type of mm-hmm. places where you can just like upload like an EPS or something, up- yeah. upload a design, and then they'll do the printing. But I feel you on the quality. We tried to do merch at Revision Path. Oh, God, mm-hmm. like two years ago. <laughs> yeah. And the quality was definitely very sketchy. Like some people would get the shirts and the image is all glitchy and stretched mm-hmm. out and I'm like, oh, I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't yeah, expecting it is, that. It, it's definitely a trial and error with different printers. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, you could have a good run with one printer and then all of a sudden you'll get an image, a T-shirt back and you're like, this is not how it should look. So it is, it, it was so hit or miss. And what I didn't like was I would have customers or people, It was, and luckily it was people that knew me. And so they would reach out and say, hey, just FYI, this is how the shirt look in case other people call and say something. And so that's how I would know, because luckily people who were supporting me in the beginning were friends and colleagues. So they would reach out and say, hey, this is what I received. And so then it was like, "Okay, I have to think about other options. And I did do some local printers here in Chicago for a bit. But I still needed to, they all had different print processes. So one person might get one shirt printed with um, screen print, and then one person may get a vinyl shirt. And so it was so all over the place that I was like, you need to streamline this because at this point, it's starting to look more like a hobby than a business. And so I had to make the investment. My family was super supportive. Everyone around me, you know, was was super supportive in helping me get support in that financial place because I was literally diving into something that was way out of my budget. But 
you know, we managed to, you know, they were able to support and managed to help get everything in place. But yes, it is very sketchy with online printing. Yeah. And I mean, and that's a big step too to purchase the equipment and decide to do it yourself, even after going with local printers. So that's, I mean, I would say that's a testament to the fact that it's something that you're very serious about and that your customers are important to know that you are kind of doing this by hand. That's really good. Yes. In all honesty, this was not my plan. So I have literally been following God's path on this because I had no desires at that particular point to be in the apparel industry. So yeah, it was like, you know what, if this is something you're going to take seriously, and if this is what God has put on my plate, then I need to treat it as something that I'm passionate about. And so my goal is always presenting, producing a product, a service, whatever to my customer that I would be proud to say or pay for myself. And so, yeah, it, I had to make the decision to bring it in house. So how did the, the idea for the apparel line come about? So I I like to joke that I fell into it, literally. So about two years ago, it was the day of the premiere for Black Panther. And I think it was like February-ish. And so in Chicago this day, it was warm. Typically around February, it's snowing, icy. But this day, it was beautiful outside. So I put on every look. I had my outfit ready to go because I was going straight to the theater after work. And I felt amazing, but I had boots on that probably should not have been worn in February. But it looked as if there was no ice outside. And I was walking to the train, headed to work and caught one patch of ice, a black ice. And I slipped and fell and resulted in me breaking my leg and my ankle in three places. And so, yeah, and that was a really tough recovery. I was unable to walk for about four months. I was in like really intense therapy for about another three to four months. And I was dealing with depression. And so one of the, my go-tos when I'm sort of down is designing. Like I, I truly enjoy designing. And so I couldn't figure out what to do with these x-rays that made me so angry. So I decided, you know what, let's switch the narrative. And so I took the x-rays from when they were my leg was broken in the x-rays post-surgery and created this really funky graphic. And I had the mantra on there of broken, healed, stronger, better, because I wanted to get to str- like I was at I was at the healed part physically, but I wanted to get mentally and emotionally at a stronger and better level. So I would wear it to I put it on a tank. I went to my online printers and had them placed on tank tops and T-shirts and I wore them to physical therapy and then I would posted on Facebook when I would, you know, make a meet a milestone. And people kept saying like, hey, that's a cool graphic. That's a nice shirt. I need that. And I was like, well, I'm kind of only making them for me. And they were like, well, but I need it. And so it sort of just happened where I was sharing my story and posting with the graphic and the T-shirt on that people got interested. And then they were like, so what else do you have? Like, what other designs do you have? Do you have a store? And it was horrible. But as a web designer, I only had an Etsy setup because I didn't I wasn't taking it seriously. I was like, you know what? I'll put an Etsy up and that that way I don't have to commit all the way. And then it just started to grow. Like, And then it, ideas started to come about. And I was like, well, maybe I should give a name to this thing that I'm doing. And then maybe I should actually create a site and take this seriously because people are actually interested in the story and what I'm doing. 
And so, yeah, so probably about a year later, probably about last year, June, no, about May of 2019 is where I officially launched Merch by B. Davis Designs as a, an apparel brand so that with more of a focus of what we were doing. So we design apparel and accessories in a way that embraces healing, confidence and culture. And that's sort of my mindset of how I'm designing when things come about. So, yeah, that's merch in a in a quick little bubble. And it looks like prior to the pandemic, you were even starting to kind of expand this merch concept out into doing events, right? Yes. So from this recovery phase, I always said I wanted to do art therapy. It has always been something that's been an interest of mine. And so when I started to use graphic design to heal from my depression, it started to kick in more. And so I was like, how can I do this? I'm not a licensed therapist, of course. So I'm like, how can I do this in a way that provides a nice, fun social environment, but also some healing aspects to it? And so I started doing merchant sips, which are similar to like your painting sips, but we use T-shirts or cigar boxes that are as the canvas for painting. And typically we start with a mantra of some sort that gives them like an outline of how they can start with the designs. And then partnered with me, I have a Reiki master in the sessions. And so she provides like, you know, about 20 minute sessions here and there. And it was very interesting. I was a little concerned because a lot of people sometimes are not as open and she was very well received. And a lot of people didn't even realize like they were painting and feeling good, but then they go over to her and they have a conversation and you see tears and they're like, oh my God, I finally released this. And I'm like, and they were like, I didn't even know I needed to be here, Brandy, but I am having so much fun. And I managed to release something that was bothering me from this era. And it was just really good to hear that we were at least on the right path. We have some tweaking to do and some different things, but it was Merchant Sip is my way of sort of starting the art therapy piece, but in a social environment. Wow. I saw the video that you had on uh, on YouTube that sort of showed the event and it looked like it was a lot of fun. Like people were really enjoying themselves. Yeah, it was it was really cool. And what I like is that the last event I was able, like more guys showed up. Typically, the pain and sips, a lot of people, they assume it's like girl nights and things like that. But it was really nice to see guys show up. And it was a good variety of ages. Like we had some that were in their 20s. We had people there that were 70. And it was everyone just sort of had a good time. And we played music from every different era. And everyone had like a really great time. So, yeah, it's been fun to do those. I will be glad when pandemic is out of the way so we can get back to some of those events. But yeah, it's been pretty cool to kind of see those take shape. Yeah. Uh, amen to that. I <laughs> I was watching it and I was getting, I mean, I've never been to that type of event, but it's like, mm-hmm. because we've been in this, you know, pandemic for so long. And I mean, some people have been getting together and still having parties yeah. and stuff, but I haven't, but just watching it, I'm like, man, I miss that. I miss I, that kind of like fellowship, you know? I do. I, I'm with you. Like I have been to a couple things but I am very standoffish. I am sort of like, give me space. You know, I haven't been to an actual event event. I've done like 
dinner here and there, like maybe twice. But it's been very hard. Like a lot of events have started to kick back in in terms of like vending and stuff that I used to do with the merch line. But I am not comfortable right now of stepping into that space just yet. So, yeah, I looked at the I I got the time hops because they actually the first one was this week last year. It was on the 14th. And so the memory came back up and I was like, oh, I really miss being able to do this. And so I'm I'm with you. Like, (laughs) and it's like, oh, yeah. Now, while you've you've had your own business, you've also worked at a few companies, too, such as Digital Bridge Solutions. You worked at Career Builder for a while. What did you learn from those experiences? You know, each job came with its own lesson. Digital Bridge taught me like a different skill. Like they were very good at helping you sort of like learn skills because they were a small boutique company. And so you wore a lot of hats. So I was able to be project manager. I was able to do QA testing, which I turned out I really love. And so Mm -hmm. it was really cool there to be able to learn different skills. But at Career Builder, I feel like they taught me how to have a perfect work-life balance. And it was interesting that it came from managers, but they were very good at like, hey, shut down. You know, like we understand the commitment shut down. This is your time. Work will start tomorrow. And that was very interesting. And I really loved how I was able to sort of like grow into my own there without apologizing. You know, they're like, hey, if if things are happening, make it happen. Let us know what you need from us and do what you need to do. And that was really good. It It was good to have like different jobs where you're able to experience certain things because you don't know what's the right fit for you until you've seen all of these different places. I worked at some places where one place in particular, won't say the name, but it was so strict. It was very corporate. Yeah, I could almost say I hated it. (laughs) It was not the right work balance for me. As a creative, you like to have some level of creativity, some level of, of expression and freedom and different things. This was not that job. It was not that job at all. So it was very hard to design in a very rigid environment. Let's switch gears here a little bit. Where did you grow up? Were you originally from Chicago? I am originally from Chicago, South Side, if that All means right. anything to anyone. But yes, <laughs> Chicago. Were you kind of exposed a lot to art and design growing up in Chicago? I would say in general, yes. Chicago is a very artistic, creative city. I would say probably from as early as preschool, I was introduced to it. You know, I would draw and do different things. I would go to plays and and different workshops they would bring into the schools. Like back then, art programs in schools were like amazing. And so you had exposure to all types of things. Like I was able to do any level, any entity of art, I was able to experience it within our Chicago public school system whether it be music, dance, sewing, drawing, painting. Literally, I have 
been able to participate in all of that within our school program. But then we would do these field trips and we would go to the opera and you get I could care less about I like I I was unconcerned about the actual performances. I appreciated them, but I got like wrapped into like the details of the colors that they used in the backgrounds the costumes that they used. And I was like focused on the details of like the structure of things and the ceilings, the paintings that they had in the ceilings. And I would get lost in the environment and completely miss the entire performance. So yeah, I would say like any given moment you could drive down, you could drive down Stony Island in Chicago, especially around 79th street where you have the theaters you have everything that are right there. It was the Regal Theater was on 79th and, and Stony Island. And it was like literally a massive mural. And so everyone just loved to be on Stony because at any point you see like murals and art all over. So, yeah, I'd say Chicago is very good at exposing a youth to arts. Now, was your family kind of supportive of you getting into the arts? Yeah, not, maybe no. So. Okay. <laughs> They were really split. So, you know, I would draw all day long, all day long. So it wasn't a surprise to them that I loved art. In high school, it came time to picking colleges. And I really was not excited about this nursing program that I was registered in. But my dad was not for me being a starving artist. He had no desires for me to go to art school because what I couldn't do was struggle. And he is, you know, he's been working since he was 14. Him and my mom, you know, they've worked all of these different nine to five jobs. And so for him, an artist was someone who just painted in their loft and didn't have a job and didn't get paid for it, which, you know, that's probably his upbringing. And he had those misconceptions, but he was so against it. And so I had to sneak to an art school interview. I did tell my mom because I needed someone to pay these fees, but I mentioned it to my mom. I'm like, look, don't tell dad, but we have an interview at this school to see about the program. And at the time I was going for 3D animation and my mom went with me and she was supportive and she was like, hey, if you want to go, we'll make it happen. And my dad was so irritated. But at that point, he couldn't say no. He appreciated the fact that I actually went, took the steps needed to research and find somewhere that I was comfortable, but he was so irritated. And then when I graduated and started working at my first job, that wiped out any doubts that I could actually (laughs) have a job in art. He was like, okay, cool. So what are you doing next? You know, like he was on board. And ever since then, he's been super supportive, but that was the one time that he really pushed back and questioned if I was making the right decision. Now, before we jump into that, that first job out of undergrad, you started out at the art institutes in Chicago. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. What was your time like there? Do you feel like they really kind of helped prepare you as a working designer? Yes and no. I feel like I had really great instructors who took time beyond what the curriculum was to prepare me. I feel like the the curriculum itself, it's, you know, it went over, it helped with the basics and it, it gave you some repetitive things that you would get used to in a work environment. But I wish it came with some postgraduate support or some in school trainings in terms of like an intern or something like that, where you were able to sort of 
even if it was just working within their graphic department or their web department and sort of getting that experience. Because I feel like we sort of, it felt very like a boutique type school. Like we touched everything on a high level. And then we, if you had an instructor that was very passionate about it, then they took that time to kind of plant seeds in you to kind of get you prepared and and give you some expectations of what to expect when you enter the real world. And then they all kind of kept in touch with me after school. And at least for about that first year or so, first year or two out of graduate, out of school, they, they kept in touch and kind of like helped me navigate that space. And so that was helpful. Yeah. Like I don't regret going to the school, but I do feel like to a certain extent, Within our curriculum programs, we should give the same type of approach that we do to anyone in business school or finance or somewhere that they are now plugged into an internship as part of the curriculum. So, yeah, I feel like that piece was missing. And just to kind of like put this in a a chronological context, this is around like the early 2000s. Is that right? Yeah. So this is like at a time when. The internet and the web are really starting to become a thing. You know, web design is now starting to become like an actual possible career profession. Right. So I think a lot of those schools at that time, and I'm I'm thinking of this mainly because I was in college at that same time at a liberal arts school, and I really wanted to go to an art institute because I had been doing web design sort of as a hobby and wanted to learn more. And I figured, oh, I should go to like the Art Institute, uh, I was down here in Atlanta, like I want to go to the Art Institute of Atlanta because they would know, they would have that information. So right. it's it's interesting to kind of, you know, put it in that context to see that this is at a time when we didn't have all of these types yeah. of uh, boot camps and online courses and things that people have mm-hmm. now where they can really be like, s- not necessarily self, well, self-taught, yes, but also like it's built on the backbone of really kind of the early days of design when that information yeah. wasn't available. Yeah. And, and that's why I don't regret going there because like, to your point, they likely didn't even know how to enter into or how to get us involved in this area that was so very new. So I, I feel like they did the best that they could in terms of it being something that was a very new program. If I'm not mistaken, it was the first year when I entered, it was the first class that they were ever like sort of experiencing and, you know, working with. So yeah, it, it, they did the best that they could, you know, I I think things have shifted a little bit. I don't even know actually if that, that department is even still available within that, within that school system, but they did the best that they could with what we had, like you said, starting out. Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to, to underestimate just how much, things were changing during that time. I mean, if we're talking early 2000s, web layouts were still being done with tables. Yeah. I mean, I remember vividly the switch and and a lot of people's anger at having mm-hmm. to convert table designs to CSS, like using CSS yeah. for layout. I remember that time so vividly <laughs> and how many people fought that. Yes, that was that was a, a doozy of a time <laughs> over. Yes. Yeah. Now, right out of undergrad, you got an internship at at the one and only Johnson Publishing Company, which for those in our audience who might not know, they were the publishers of 
Ebony and Jet Magazine, among many other publications that they had. Where were you when you first heard the news that you were going to work there? You know what? The good thing I would say, the one thing about the art institutes is that they put me on this path of getting to Johnson because all of these groups that they uh, art program, not art programs, but art groups that they promoted. One of the groups I joined was one that they were promoting and it happened to be black designers. And it was based on the South Side. And it was so cool to see people who looked like me doing the same thing because that was not represented in my classes. And so I joined this and one of the ladies in that group worked at Johnson and she had posted in the board the job. And originally I thought it was graphic. So I sent it to a friend and she sent it back and was like, no, it's for web. This is for you. Apply. And so I interviewed and then I can't think of her last name, but LaDoris was her first name. She was over HR and I love her dearly. And she was like the sweetest, but the most stern person in life. But she called to let me know. And I feel like I may have been home because cell phones were not that tough in 2003. So I likely was at home when I found out. The one thing that I don't remember about this experience is where I was in the moment that I got the call. Everything else I remember in detail, but I would assume that I was likely at home and probably kept it to myself for about a day or two because I was so overwhelmed with the idea of working there. And my family and friends were so excited and it was so much pressure. And so I kept a lot of things when I first started there to myself because it was just so much. So I likely got the call from LaDoris Foster. That was her last name. LaDoris Foster. And she she did. She let me know. She was like, hey, you know, they want you to come in on this day. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was like August 8th. Oh, wow. You remember it to the day. Remember, I'm telling you, I remember so many details except for everything. But it was August 8th of 2003 that I would start. And I remember it because I remember saying eight is a number of new beginnings. And so I kept going through those biblical numbers of things. So, yes, that's the the moment when I found out. Now, I'm curious, you know, being from Chicago, how much I guess how much of a reputation did the company have like as you were growing up? Because you mentioned your friends and family being you know super excited about it. And of course, folks knew about Johnson Publishing Company because of the magazines. But like. I don't know if if people can really sort of get the grasp of how much of an influence that company was during that time. Yeah, like there was so many stories. Like when I started working there, I had family members from Mississippi call and give me stories about how Mr. Johnson helped them when they were in school and or paid for this. Or It was very strange to see that all of these experiences people were having that they had never shared until they knew someone who had worked there. And Mm -hmm. so in Chicago, he was like, they were like the first family of Chicago, regardless of who was the mayor and all of that. They were the, they were the black royalty of the city and everyone got excited riding down Michigan Avenue and you see the building and you get excited. Like, Oh, I can see the Ebony and Jet signs and things like that. But they they he had such a huge impact on all of the South Side, the black communities that he was like literally like king to everyone, you know, like 
everyone got excited. They respected him because he's a straight shooter. And so it was it was cool to work somewhere that instantly you say the name. And at that point, you could have been anyone in any position. And the respect instantly shot through the roof because of who he was and who the company was to everyone during that time. Because I remember like my grandmother having the magazines, you know, all out on the table and subscriptions coming in. And oddly enough, my sister picked my first name by reading an Ebony magazine. Like my mom was pregnant with me and she's like, I was reading an Ebony magazine and I saw an actress from a soap opera named Brandy. Wow. Like mom, you know, because originally I was going to be named Camille. And so she was like, no. I think you should be, I think she should be Brandy. And then it was, so when I started working there, she was like, wow, like that's literally, you're working at the place where I literally read the magazine to get your first name kind of a thing. So it was really cool to kind of like see it kind of take shape. Yeah. I don't know if the current generation of black designers now know just how much of an influence Johnson Publishing Company has had in the black community. I mean, they were around, they started in 1945. They've been there through pretty much every major political, civil, social movement from then to now documenting it with articles and pictures and everything. And also Johnson Publishing Company owned a cosmetics company called, I think it was Supreme Beauty Company. So it eventually ran into Fashion Fair Cosmetics. Yeah, Fashion Fair Cosmetics. And I actually have a, a story about that. So John Johnson's wife, Eunice, is from my hometown. She's from Selma, Alabama. Her father is a doctor. Well, her father was a doctor. They've all passed on. But her father was a doctor. Her father used to be my grandmother's doctor. Nice. So <laughs> so we knew, we knew the Walkers. And every year when Ebony would do the fashion fair, like fashion tour, right? They would always have a stop in Selma, even though it wasn't necessarily like printed on the schedule, they would always stop in Selma so we could like see the fashion and the makeup and everything like that. So, yeah. (laughs) Selma was, like you said, if it was not on the schedule and if someone made the mistake and did not put it on the schedule, it was a huge issue because she... The two of them made sure that they always hit the, their home spot states and they always made sure that they did some type of event where they were fundraising or volunteering or donating something. They always made sure that when they got to their home city that they did extra. It was always, you know, like, let me let's do this. Let's have this bring this person out. Let's donate this. And so that I loved about them because as long as they had been in Chicago and everything that they had been doing, they never lost sight of who they were and where they came from. And yes, Selma was, if, if, if it was not on the schedule, you'd have to answer as to why did you assume that she would not want to go to her home city? And so <laughs> <that>. <laughs> now you yeah. were there for, I mean, nearly nine years working your way up from being an intern to being like the senior designer slash producer there. Do you have any any stories from that time? Like, what do you remember the most about working there? So I like to tell people that working there was like going to your family reunion with your favorite cousins every day. So it was like, 
literally every day you and your favorite cousins are hanging out. So it was like 10 floors. And so each department pretty much had a floor. But everyone went from floor to floor because you had to interact in some sense of the for the most part, a lot of people had to come to the floor I was on, which is graphic and web. So I got to interact with a lot of different departments, but it was so much fun. And I would I would like soak it up like all the history. Like I stayed in the library. Like if I was on lunch break, I was in the library getting like dates, information about stuff that happened in the 70s or reading books that, you know, they would be recommend, they would recommend to kind of give you the history. And so it was, it was from just a daily interaction. It was amazing. It was like fun, but then there were celebrities and it was almost required that we had to interact with the celebrities. And I was like, Oh, okay. So (laughs) to stop work and entertain. Cool. Like, and so literally you'd hear like, they say, oh, Halle Berry is here or no, it was Tony Braxton. Tony Braxton is here. And at that time, like Tony was like the person you wanted to be like. And so I was like, yes, cool. They're like, we need people. You got to come up, take pictures. Blah, you know, like every time a celebrity came, it was like, we have lunch. Come upstairs, introduce yourselves, let them know what you do. Take some photos, things like that. It was great, you know, and sometimes they would do concerts and we would just sit there for two, three hours, just like talking about things. They would get information they needed for the story, just kind of get them, you know, feeling good about what was the setup of the story and, and what direction it was going in. So it was pretty cool. Like those were the really good memories of like just having the celebrity sort of just pop in. And they're like, hey, how you doing? And you don't elevate it like, oh, okay, I just came from lunch. But hi, sir. Like (laughs) Anyone, you know, it was rappers. It was R&B singers. It was blues singers, gospel. Like at any point, it could be a 22-year-old rapper or a 70-year-old gospel singer. And you knew them because they were staples in the Black community. And it was just so cool to kind of see. But I would say probably like for me, one of the best experiences was like when I got there, Mr. Johnson was still alive and he was, but he was sort of, he, you could tell that he was getting, starting to get sick, but I was excited because I at least got to spend some of those years that I was there where he was still in his prime and walking around and doing things. And I got to take a, 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 got on the elevator and and Mr. Johnson and Eunice got on the elevator with me and he knew who I was, which is, is a huge thing because I never had to meet him when I interviewed. And so it was so shocking to me that of all these people who worked here, he knew who I was and he spoke highly. He's like, this person told me about you. I know exactly who you are. And that like as the kid who is like coming in as the intern and to know that someone has spoke highly enough of me to the owner and for him to remember me, it was like the best feeling ever. And then to see him and his wife interact as if I wasn't in the room or the elevator, it was so hilarious. And they were like so funny and laid back. And I'm just sitting back here like I'm watching a movie. But this was like 
my life. And so those were the the memories that I, I hold the most. The celebrities were cool, but it was like experiencing all of the different people who had key roles in the history of the magazine, seeing them in their prime or at, at some parts of their prime was like amazing. Now, speaking of like the history of the magazine, you were working there making sure that you were getting Ebony's web presence up. And this was during a time when, and then you can kind of, you know, fill me in on this, but like, I feel like this was during a time when magazine publishing was starting to decline in print and starting to go more online. Do you recall kind of what that shift was like for you as you were working there? So when I started, they had already shifted to putting some presence on the site, but As it began to increase, I would say probably about a year or two into being there, it was definitely a ramp up of we need more traffic. You had started to get more advertising online instead of the magazine. And so it was a it was a huge adjustment and it was met with some pushback because rightfully so no one wants one entity to take away from another And so when you're used to the magazine publication, what you don't want to see is the web now become the dominant thing when you are used to this physical magazine. And so it was a lot of pushback and a lot of growing pains of getting them on board that one supports the other. It doesn't replace it. And so we had to go through that process of just showing them how we could use the two to complement one another and not replace the printed version. Because at the time there was a high level of subscribers that of course were, that were an older demographic and they don't understand. They didn't understand. Let's go online to look up the latest article. They wanted a magazine so it was it was difficult to kind of get those conversations started and and come out with the result that we needed that we felt was needed for the company to grow in the right direction. Eventually things started to get a little bit easier as they saw ways that okay, we can there were certain things that they couldn't print in the magazine because of space and and whatnot so we couldn't do extended versions of the interview on the website. And so it was things like that that helped us get them on board with everything. But it was some difficult conversations of getting a lot more content on the website. Yeah. What do you think about sort of where black publications are now? Because I think it's funny. I was talking to my mom about this the other day because I was (laughs) I called her up and was asking her, like, what was the importance of Ebony and Jet? Like when you were growing up as a child, like she was born in the early 50s, you know, Mm -hmm. grew up during the civil rights movement, etc. And I'm asking her just like, what did it mean to her? And now I think what one of the only print magazines for well two of the only print magazines for black folks are essence mm-hmm. and black enterprise and they both have web presences of course but like with you having worked in publishing on the web in that sort of way how do you feel about sort of the current landscape of what like black media is doing from a personal standpoint it pains me deeply to not see ebony on, and jet on the newsstands i understand that things shift but it pains me deeply to not see a physical publication. I wish 
the current generation understood the importance of that history and how it needed to be cultivated and, and kept around. But things shift and I appreciate the presence that Black media has online, but I do wish that we would have been able to adjust and keep some of that history. Because when Life and all of these other publications, when they are no longer in print, they are remembered and they will continue to be remembered by by many. I feel that Black publications can almost get lost on our current generation because there's no importance behind that history of it. And so it's great to see people move into an online media, but at the same time, it feels like we're losing a piece of history in Black publications that we won't be able to get back. But yeah, I like I appreciate everything that they're doing in a in a digital sense. It just pains to not see more publications printed. Yeah. And to that point of, you know, now there being a lot of these black media publications and such online, as you sort of mentioned in terms of like archiving and preservation, like where do the digital copies of these things go? Because, you know, most of the stuff that we do on the web is is largely ephemeral. Like it gets overwritten. There's new versions. Things get Mm -hmm. saved over, et cetera. Like how are the older versions of these things being preserved? Like, I wrote for uh, this website back in like 2005, 2006, mm-hmm. called Black Web 2.0. And it was, you know, it was a, a blog, essentially, but it was mm-hmm. talking about like what black people were doing in technology and startups and things like that. And you can find vestiges of that online mm-hmm. in the Internet Archive, but everything is not going to be saved in the Internet Archive, I think, yeah. first of all. But then secondly, you know, who or what organization or entity will be responsible for preserving what black people are doing online in this digital age. You know, I mean, yeah, we can go and find the old versions of Ebony and Jet Mm -hmm. on Google. You know, it's not the full archives, but it's part of it. But like, where are you going to find stuff from, let's say, I don't know, urban online or Mm -hmm. Africana.com or AOL black voices, like all that stuff has been (laughs) erased and has gone to like the annals of time. You may be able to find pieces of it here and there, but like, not in any sort of capacity where you could really right. go back and see, like, what was going on during the time? What were people talking about? Like, exactly. you know, it came to me when I was thinking of how Netflix is bringing back these old TV shows now, like Moesha and Sister Sister and stuff like that. And I was like, man, that's like UPN Monday night. And I was I was telling that to someone and they were like, what's UPN? <gasps> what? Like, <laughs> I can't believe that. Like, it hasn't been that long ago, but like the fact that the history is not even preserved in a way where you could find it easily is ridiculous. Yeah, that's the part that sucks. I always say that the internet and web design and all of that is a blessing and a curse. It's awesome for advancement and being innovative and progressing in terms of technology. But to your point, a lot of things that we were able to preserve and keep and archive and, you know, those history, those articles and magazines and different things that are important to our culture, we are unable to do so in this environment. And so it's a blessing in the sense that we are advancing and we're getting more involved and and things are like literally stuff that I probably would have never imagined as a kid. How the things that I looked up to and admired as a kid are now being sort of lost 
And there's no way, like you said, to sort of you pull that up. You could pull up Ebony, but if the site is gone, if whatever reason that site is off, gone, then what is left? You know, what's there besides Ebony article, Ebony articles, and that only going to be there for so long as people are sharing them. But at what point does it just sort of remove itself from our memory and history? Yeah, because I think what will end up happening is that as it's being removed and people don't remember it, then other people step in to try to tell that story and Mm -hmm. they may not be doing it from the best, you know, intentions. They may be honestly lying, you know, like, so to have that in our own words in that way, I think is, that's definitely very, very important. One thing that I saw as I was watching, I saw these videos about your merch line, you know, to kind of bring it back to that. It reminded me how a lot of designers I know now have some sort of a hobby or, or side business or side project or something where they're making something physical. And I think it's, you know, to the point you're saying, a lot of the work that we do is kind of saved over and forgotten or archived or not even archived, but just written over in some way. And so they're doing something physical, like how you're doing merch, how other people do other physical, tangible Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And I don't know if that's the main purpose of it, but it makes sure that you have some kind of physical relic of the work that you've done. Yes, that is definitely like one of the things that is important of being able to just having something physical, which is technically like merch in terms of like Chicago slang is like just that something that you can design and put something on physical, like a physical item that you can put a design to, you know, like that's how we associate merch of it. And so it was like, yeah, it gives you a way to sort of carve your own little piece in history in this moment to have that physical thing because you we know when we design things for clients if it's not for huge projects or for things that are going in in events or or workshops or different places where that history is maintained it's thrown away you know like once you do it it's done it's gone and i have a lot of designs that i'm like oh i really love that design but there's no way to use that again it's done you know and so this is a way to sort of have that passion project where you can design from a true passionate, creative, not attached to a client with no inhibitions. Like you could just do whatever you want. And then because of that physical item, you are now able to keep that into some sort of a history, whether that be me archiving it myself or someone who has purchased it, keeping it and holding on to it. My mom, who has kept everything, Lord bless her heart, in her wallet if she can, (laughs) like has had every first business card I've ever made in her wallet. So just having those physical items, it does bring back, you know, the ability of being able to kind of have a piece of history, a piece of, look, this is what I used to do, you know, to be able to show that. Yeah, absolutely. So as I was, you know, doing my research for this interview and I was watching videos about you, there was a line that you said in an interview. I think it was on the Chicago like daytime news show or something. And you said that design is constant in my healing. Can you talk more about that? Yes. So typically when I design for myself and sometimes for others, it comes from a place some form of 
I design for in that moment of how I'm feeling. And so if I am not in the best of mood, then I start designing because I need to shift. Because as I said, I truly enjoy, like designing is my happy spot. I truly enjoy designing. And so if at any point my mood has shifted or I am dealing with any trauma or anything that is happening in my life that has interfered my peace, I start designing because that is the one place that I know I can get lost in it and not be worried about the moment. I can get lost in whatever world I enter in for that design. And it's almost an instant feel good pill because once I keep designing until I get to a point that whatever I needed nurturing inside of me has been satisfied. And so it clicks in the moment when I get to a certain point in the design that I'm like, I'm done. Like this feels good. And it, it's one of those things of I like I like to tell like when I'm talking to my clients, I like to say, hey, if I can connect with you spiritually, we're going to have some really dope designs because that means I'm able to tap into what you need from a different level than the physical area. And so for me, designing is spiritual. It, it feels good. And so anytime that I'm designing, it is definitely a healing process for me. So it is always the two go together hand in hand always. Chicago inspire you. Chicago is like my mini New York. Like I really love New York because of New York, because of the art, artistic presence that it has. And I feel like Chicago is on that same level. Like I love the culture. I love our little language inside the city, inside of whether you're west side or south side, we all have our own little slangs that we use. I love having that influence that is around. And so Chicago is like, Chicago is home. Like I feel good when I, when I talk about it, like I love the food, I love everything about it. So I get inspiration everywhere in the city. And we're not necessarily like in your face about a lot of things from the artistic world, but every time that you are around or in different areas of the city, you can tell by just how like the graffiti shifts or different murals start to change and different building structures. It's just beauty all around it. And I don't think we get enough credit for the beauty in the artistic world that we have and the influences that we have. But we are some really talented people. We just, you know, are not necessarily given the platform or on the platform that a lot of these other cities are. But I get inspiration in Chicago daily. Like there's a conversation that will spark an idea because someone will say some slang from back in the 90s and it's like, hmm, wait a minute, I can turn this into something. So it's always something that is happening that from a cultural standpoint, I just love about Chicago. Question that I'm asking every guest pretty much this year is how you're using your skills and design to kind of help build a more equitable future. So as you kind of look back at your career and what you've you know been able to accomplish How are you using your skills to do that? I would say from a design standpoint, I am likely shifting into 
a different industry, but keeping graphic as my foundation, graphic design as my foundation. I feel that my passion and long term and longevity is in marrying graphic design and mental health. And so that is where I am working toward. I don't know if that means I'm back in school and I become an art therapist. I don't know, but I am open to that idea because I love the sound of that. But I want to use graphic design as a way to impact the mental health industry environment where we are helping the youth in the city heal. Just as I say, designing is always part of my healing process. I want to use that same passion and skills and techniques to help others do the same thing because we have so many of our youth walking around in depression and anxiety and they're dealing with trauma daily. Like at this point we have become desensitized to it, but there is trauma daily in our city and we're not allowing them to have a creative outlet of how to express that. And so I would like for me in terms of long-term goals of using my skill as a graphic artist to impact the mental health industry for the youth of Chicago. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work would you like to be doing? Hopefully after this pandemic has gone. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. After the pandemic, oh, it would be awesome if there was a B. Davis designed. I call it an art hub, but I would love to have an art hub that, that allows anyone to come in and experience graphic web apparel, art therapy, merchant sips, where we are having events, we are healing people, we are having workshops, we are designing, like, in my head, I wish you could see inside my head, Maurice, in my head, it is the most colorful space. It has, you know, the history of graphic design and text and fonts and different things being represented on the walls as murals coming together as an art piece in itself. It is teenagers over here, you know, designing graphics for apparel, for, you know, different things. Like it is me in my happy space, creating a a fun and safe space for my community to experience art and to create what I hope would be a future career for them. Because a lot of us, we get in the industry, we may be self-taught and different things, but my goal is to teach them not just the graphic, the creative side, but the business side of it so that they are able to navigate. So in five years, I don't know what you call me in five years, but I have a creative hub that is allowing the community of the South Side of Chicago to thrive through graphic design. Wow. Well, Brandy, just to you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? Yes. Yeah, so my website for my graphic and apparel is I do graphic and web dot design. And then for the merch piece where it has the art therapy and merchant sips, that is at merch by B Davis And then I am on Facebook and Instagram the most. 
So those are B Davis Designs LLC and merch by B Davis Designs, both for Facebook and Instagram. All right. Sounds good. Well, Brandy Davis, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, like I mentioned, you know, kind of during the interview, as I was talking about how I discovered you and found out about you, I think really from hearing you talk about your work and from the passion that you have from it, it's very clear that like, as a woman of faith, that that's something that really inspires your work. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like you have this divine inspiration that pushes you to succeed and to create and to really even turn, you know, bad experiences, like you said, breaking your leg, taking that and turning it into a merch line. Like that's, that's inspired. So, I mean, thank you just for the work that you've done for the work that you're continuing to do. And I'm really excited to see what you do in the future. So thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This has been awesome. I am truly blessed to be in a space that is allowing me to share my story in any capacity. So I thank you for allowing me to do so today. And yes, I am definitely a woman of faith and my passion for design goes well beyond anything that I could ever imagine. If there's anything that I could have been doing outside of design, I don't think I would want it. So I thank you for allowing me to share that. Big, big thanks to Brandy Davis. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Brandy and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.